0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And
2: I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Memory loss, difficulty communicating or finding the right words, having a hard time planning and organizing even simple tasks. Those are some of the signs of dementia. Dementia is more than just Alzheimer's disease.
3: Sometimes when we hear the word dementia, we think of this as a specific disease. And it's really not a disease, but a whole constellation of different conditions. And so dementia, I would really think of it as an umbrella term that we see fairly commonly.
2: Also on the program, adults aren't the only ones who get kidney cancer. Children can get it too.
1: And is the new so-called female Viagra effective in treating low-sex drive in women? As new study says, maybe not.
2: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this.
1: We'll Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's a fact, Tracy. The American population is aging. The U.S. Census Bureau estimates that the number of people aged 65 and older will almost double in the next 35 years. And that probably includes you.
2: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Going from around
1: 45 million now to about 84 million Americans over the age of 65.
2: Whether you're already in that over 65 group or you're caring for someone who is, you know that aging can present some significant challenges, among them dementia. When we hear the word dementia, most of us think Alzheimer's disease, but dementia isn't a specific disease. Instead, dementia describes a group of symptoms affecting memory, thinking, and social abilities severely enough to interfere with daily functioning.
1: Well, here to talk about dementia, recognizing it, and treating it is aging specialist Dr. Erica Tung. Dr. Tung is a geriatrician at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Tung. Thanks for
3: having
4: me. I
1: know some people want to know, this job can't be much fun, taking care of old people. How did you ever end up as a a geriatrician? And tell us what it is you like about your subspecialty.
3: You know, I feel like I have the best job in the world. Really? Every day I love coming to work. (laughs) I have the best job in the world as a geriatrician. Really, this is a dream career for me. And so, you know, the the thing that keeps me going every day is hearing the wonderful stories from my patients and their families and, and learning from my patients every day. So I really think it's a rewarding career.
1: And so do you see anybody... Under the age of sixty-five,
3: I do. I still have my primary care practice. So I enjoy taking care of adults of all ages. But I have a
2: specific place in my heart for taking care of my older patients. And as the population is aging, and those numbers that Dr. Shines is throwing out, um, it's going to obviously be a situation moving forward that's just going to increase more and more elderly people.
3: Yeah, it's good job security for sure us geriatricians. <laughs> and unfortunately, we're not seeing a ton of people going into geriatrics. And so we're we're hoping to get the word out there that it is a fabulous career choice. And so um, we're reaching out to our medical
2: students and residents and, and making sure they know what a rewarding career it is. Well, let's talk about dementia because you said that is one of the main things that your patients and their family members want to talk with you about. Yeah, absolutely. Dementia is
3: very common, and unfortunately still under-recognized. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions uh, um, in the community about dementia. And so I'm glad that you're interested in talking about this today. So what are some of those misconceptions? Well, I think the first thing is that sometimes when we hear the word Mm -hmm. dementia, we think of this as a specific disease. And it's really not a disease, but a whole constellation of different conditions. And so dementia, I would really think of it as an umbrella term. And under dementia, like you mentioned, Tracy, Alzheimer's disease is gonna be the most common type of dementia. So about 70 to 80% of dementia will be Alzheimer's disease. But there are also several other subtypes, such as dementia with Lewy bodies, dementia related to strokes, frontotemporal dementia that we see fairly commonly.
1: So tell us about the symptoms. What are some early symptoms of dementia And, and, and what the term really means from a medical standpoint?
3: Yeah, from a medical standpoint, when we think about dementia, number one, it is an acquired condition. So this is not something that someone is born with. This is usually a a condition of later life where a person starts to develop impairments in their cognition. And so we normally think about things like short-term recall when we think about dementia. But the first, first symptoms might be apathy. They might be um, difficulty organizing our day or organizing tasks that we used to do easily, like remembering a recipe or remembering how to program a piece of electronics. Um, It might be difficulty with language or finding the right word at the right time. Um, Or it might even be difficulty with visual spatial tasks, like remembering how to get from point A to point B in our car or how to put something together that we used to be able to do. So it's an acquired impairment in some of those cognitive domains.
1: And it can be relatively mild. Please say that it it, it is not abnormal to have a, a little bit of some of those things you mentioned as you get older.
3: Everybody, all ages, we all have daily memory lapses. I thought I was going to have to hold your hand the rest of this interview. (laughs) We all forget the name of somebody that's familiar Mm -hmm. to us in the grocery store. Forget where we put our car keys. But it's when those lapses start to impact our ability to function, um, either professionally or socially or personally. When we start having an impact on our ability to function and we're noticing it and other people around us are
2: noticing it, that I, I start to worry. That's what I wanted to know. Does the patient recognize that that is happening, or do those around them recognize it? It's both? Great question. Um,
3: it's different for different people. Sometimes people can have insight that they are starting to have some difficulties, whereas in other situations, the person that's affected with dementia might be less aware than those around them. And so that's why when I'm talking to somebody that has new memory concerns, it's really important that I talk to somebody else in their life, a loved one, a relative, a friend, somebody that knows them well, and can start to t- tell me another perspective.
1: It, there's sort of a fine line, isn't there, between uh, forgetfulness and, and true dementia? I, I heard you say that it's dementia when it, when it impairs your ability to, to function. But how do you how do you really know that? How do you determine, either by interviewing the patient or talking to the family, that yes, this patient has dementia?
3: Yeah, well, it's a lot of careful history taking is the first step, but finding out where those memory lapses are, is there a pattern, are they increasing in frequency, and trying to get a sense of what that person could do independently before that now they're doing with less efficiency or effectiveness is is really what I try and go after. And and sometimes... um, uh, it might be subtle, and we might have to follow those symptoms over time before we can make the diagnosis. Do you screen your patients for dementia? Is that possible? Well, um, that's a it's a controversial area. Hmm. Um, while we usually don't recommend universal screening, meaning you know going to a grocery store and screening every single person over the age of 60 for dementia, we do recommend what I would call case finding. So if a person comes in with any kind of subjective concerns about their memory or a, or a family member or a friend is concerned or perhaps they have risk factors like a family history of somebody with Alzheimer's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies, then that person, we should have a very low threshold to do um, additional history taking and um, do a good neurologic examination and mental status examination.
1: Is there any test you can take?
3: So we do, um, what we call a mental status test in the office. There are numerous mental status tests out there that healthcare providers can utilize. And, and many of them are very effective in, um, identifying some of those deficits we talked about. So we try and test different cognitive domains. We test short-term memory. We test um, visual spatial functioning, word finding, um, ability to think abstractly. And looking at all those different domains, we can put the picture
2: together and see if there's really a problem. I was thinking it would be important for someone to go in, and if, if you're not going to call it screening, but and then at least have a baseline set. But that's kind of tricky to do because the person is aging, so the baseline would therefore be changing as you age, correct? Um, I think that that baseline
3: is really important so okay. we can identify a, a change um, or identify a new impairment. That um, uh, Our ability to do a lot of those cognitive domains doesn't change too dramatically with age.
1: Dr. Erica Tung is a geriatrician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She's also an expert on dementia. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about treatment of dementia and also some end-of-life issues is for the demented person in the United States. Unfortunately, too many of them, and the population is aging. Dr. Eric Tung, when we come back.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is Dr. Erica Tung. She's a geriatrician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and also an expert on dementia. She's talked to us about the symptoms and the diagnosis of dementia, and now we want to talk about treatment and how the patient can help themselves, what Dr. Tung can do for them, and how the family can help. So let's start with treatment. I know it's been a a difficult problem for a long time, particularly with regard to Alzheimer's disease. And even if I'm correct, there still are not any good medications for Alzheimer's, the most common form of dementia.
3: Well, you're exactly right that we don't have a disease modifying cure. We don't have a a medicine that will turn back the clock and and cure the disease. But there are lots of things that we can do. And that's why it's important to detect the dementia and make the diagnosis early. And and a lot of the things that we recommend as treatments are actually not um, a medication. So So in terms of non-pharmacologic options that we have, the first thing is really careful planning. And that planning starts with safety planning. And so when I first make the diagnosis and I'm talking to a patient and their family or their loved ones about the diagnosis, we talk about how to keep them safe and independent as long as possible. And sometimes um, it's a difficult conversation because we talk about things like driving and driving safety because we know that with this diagnosis that as that memory impairment progresses, at some point we will lose the ability to drive safely. And so that's one of the first things we talk about is how to plan for
2: that. And- is that one of the first things patients ask about? <laughs> no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, it seems like that's what so many people are concerned about when it comes to something is happening to me that can, mm. I still want to be able to drive.
1: Losing their mobility. Yeah. Yep.
2: yeah. That, that independence.
3: Well, it it is a very challenging thing to assess somebody's driving safety because we don't have a single physical exam technique or a test that we can do in the office that says whether this person's at risk for motor vehicle crash. It's really a constellation of different assessments, looking at medications, concentration, reflexes, that help me make that decision. And sometimes when it is... Um, uh, a, a challenging, it's, it's not an easy call. I might ask them to re-tech, take their test. Mm-hmm. Both the written test and the, um, on the road test. And that way we can all feel secure that we're doing the right thing. Because just because a person has a new memory complaint doesn't mean that they have to stop driving. It just means we need to keep an eye on things. And then when it is time to take, um, a driving retirement, that, that we, that we
1: take that
2: responsible step. I well, like that, that phrase, that, driving retirement. That's a good <laughs> phrase because it really can be emotional and a hard fight for a lot of families.
1: So that, I'm sure that's a that's a a good way for you to make the suggestion that maybe they shouldn't be driving anymore. Ask them to retake the test rather than saying you can't drive. I don't think you should drive anymore. Yeah, yeah that's got to be tough.
3: It gives us a more objective um, perspective on on the driving.
1: All right. Medications. Um, Are there any that you use in people with Alzheimer's or other dementias that seem to help?
3: Yeah, so the big class of medications we use are a class called the cholinesterase inhibitors, and so many people are familiar with medications like Ariceptor, which is uh, Donapazel, um, or, or Rivastigmine, and, and these medications can help to stabilize the condition, and it's hard for us to predict who will benefit more. There are some people that it really does help to stabilize them for months to years. Other people mm. might not get any benefit at all. So I think that early on in the disease process, it's worthwhile to try a medication such as uh, the ones I mentioned and then reassess in three to six months and ensure that person is getting benefit. If they're not getting benefit, then there's no reason to continue taking that medication. It's safe to wean them off of that medication. But we have seen some, um, um, some individuals that really do benefit, especially our patients that have dementia with Lewy bodies, really seem to be sensitive to this class of medication, and it can really impact their ability to
2: function. All right, so we've talked about the safety issues with driving um, medications. Are there other treatment? Things to consider once someone has been diagnosed with dementia. Um, there's also um, uh,
3: a lot of programming both in the community and at healthcare institutions for cognitive training. I always think of that as like physical therapy for your brain. Right. And so um, this is especially helpful early on in the course of the uh, dementing process, or even for somebody that has mild cognitive impairment that's not to that level of dementia that we. Um, try to establish routines in the day if we can establish a very careful routine where we're eating breakfast at the same time we're um, going to bed at the same time we're doing this that helps the brain to succeed because we're not throwing a lot of curveballs at the brain and then if we can establish that routine through cognitive um, training and retraining we can help that person to stay independent longer in the community
1: Um, I want to ask you, uh, so someone who is is demented, uh, you know, they can go to assisted uh, living or they can go to a senior living center. When do you make the decision and how do you make the decision that they need to go to the Alzheimer's unit or the dementia unit?
3: Yeah, well, great question. Um, there are so many different options for senior housing in the community, and a lot of it depends on how much informal support an individual have from their family or from their friends. And and so um, depending on um, what that person's needs are and depending on what their informal resources are, we try and individualize that decision. Memory care units are specialized units where the um, social workers and nurses and health aides all are trained in the care of somebody with memory impairment, and um, they're all geared towards safety. So they um, would be geared toward not um, um, to monitoring that person throughout the day so that they couldn't wander off or that they couldn't get into trouble with a equipment or, or an oven that would um, mm, um, sure. uh, create a fire. And so sometimes when we start to worry more about safety and that person needs 24-hour supervision, that's when we need to make the transition to memory care.
2: Speaking all of, of all of that supervision, and... Um, Caregivers are a big part of this team, which kind of breaks my heart when I think about somebody who doesn't have a caregiver. But let's talk about um, how do you work with the caregivers or the family members of these patients?
3: Yeah, well, the, the first piece of advice I always give caregivers is please accept help. Other people are going to offer you help, whether it's from your faith community or friends or family. Allowing that help and allowing other people to help you um, uh, take care of your loved one is incredibly important because we want them to be in this for the marathon and not just the sprint. And so, um, uh, if if there are other people that can help them um, to stay healthy, to give them breaks and respite, we want them to do that. Additionally, um, I always recommend caregiver coaching. We have great um, community classes and across the country for caregivers to stay healthy
1: all right we we've got about a minute remaining and i want to ask your opinion about assisted suicide i know that you've seen some very difficult situations in your practice california just passed a law approving assisted suicide but i think you have to be mentally competent to say yes i would i'd like you to assist in my death what's your opinion
3: well i think in 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 with a lot of the conditions i see in geriatrics especially with dementia some people say that it it um at the end of their life that life isn't worth living and so uh, what I think is that we can take steps um, in our state where this is not a legal um, uh, proposition. We can take steps to make sure that we hear that individual's voice and preferences when they can still make those decisions so that we can institute early palliative care and even hospice care at the end of their life to make sure that we ensure their dignity in the last weeks and days of their life.
2: Thanks, Dr. Tung, for sharing your insights into recognizing and treating dementia. Dr. Erica Tung is a geriatric specialist at Mayo Clinic.
1: Thank you. Coming up on Mayo Clinic Radio, kidney cancer is often thought of as an adult disease, but children can get kidney cancer, too. My colleague, Dr. Dan Elliott, joins Tracy as they talk with an expert about kidney cancer in children.
2: And we'll have an update on a new study about the effectiveness of ADI, the drug for women with low sexual desire disorder that's been dubbed the female Viagra.
1: Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu.
2: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. For many people, eating the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables each day can be difficult. It's often easier, especially on busy days, to order fast food or pick up pre-packaged meals at the grocery store. But those convenience foods may have ingredients that are not nutritious. A new study in the British Medical Journal shows more than half of the calories we consume are from ultra-processed foods.
1: Processed food is defined as food that contains sugar, salt fat and other natural ingredients, ultra-processed also contains additives that aren't normally found in the food supply. Mayo Clinic
0: nutrition expert Dr. Donald Hendruth says 60% of our calories and 90% of the added sugar we consume comes from ultra-processed foods. So he says it's not only what we're eating that's the issue, it's what we're not eating.
1: If we're eating that type of food, we're not eating fresh or frozen fruits, vegetables, whole grains in their natural form, which contain a lot of nutrients.
0: Less than one-fourth of the population in the U.S. gets in five fruits and veggies each day, but eating them can reduce the risk of heart disease, cancer, and possibly overall mortality. So Dr. Hensrud says try to work in more real foods and less ultra-processed foods and now let's talk about metabolic syndrome it's a cluster of conditions high blood pressure high blood sugar excess body fat around the waist and high cholesterol or triglyceride levels that happen together increasing your risk of heart disease stroke and diabetes now having just one of these conditions doesn't mean you have metabolic syndrome but any of these conditions increases your risk of serious disease having more than one of them might increase your risk even more so if you have syndrome or any of its components, aggressive lifestyle changes can delay or even prevent the development of serious health problems. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
5: Welcome back to the Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Dan Elliott.
2: And I'm Tracy McRae.
5: According to the American Cancer Society, about 10,000 children from infancy to age 14 will be diagnosed with cancer this year. The most common by far, roughly 55%, will be leukemias or cancer of the blood, cancers of the brain, and central nervous system.
2: But included in those childhood cancers will be cases of Wilms Tumor, a form of kidney cancer. Wilms Tumor most often affects children ages 3 to 4 and becomes less common after age 5. The outlook for most children diagnosed with Wilms Tumor is pretty good.
5: Here to talk about Wilms Tumor and other kidney cancers is our Mayo Clinic pediatric urologist, Dr. Candice Granberg. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. So explain to us um, a little bit about Wilms Tumor. Give us a quick lesson.
6: Okay. Well, it's a type of tumor that just shows up in the kidney. Nobody really knows why. There's nothing that we can see causes it as far as in the environment, in your diet, is it inherited? It just happens. And so in some kids, they will just develop this tumor, and they might notice that their belly is starting to get bigger. They might have start to have pain in their tummy. Some kids will have blood when they pee, and some kids only have a fever. And when they go to the doctor, usually the most common way we see it is somebody who's feeling their tummy and they feel something hard. Hmm. And is, is Wilms... Um just usually children's only there's not adults that get Wilms tumor it's pretty uncommon for an adult to get it so yes it's way more common in kids
5: At where now let's go back to the basics here mm-hmm. for a parent where are the kidneys in a child
6: so the kidneys sit in the in the back side of their back. And so it's in. if you looked at your tummy, where your belly button is, just up and then on the sides, in the very back behind all of the intestines that digest all the food are the kidneys.
5: Okay, so normally the kidneys cannot be felt. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so then when they do feel something up there, that's when we get concerned, correct? Correct. Okay.
2: And so is this... Okay, I say this very lightly. <laughs> is this a good kind of cancer to have? Is Willems' tumor easy cancer to a have? Be- a
6: better kind <laughs> to a have. A better yeah. kind. No, less evil. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, it's, it's a very good question because probably one of the hardest things I have to do is tell a parent that their kid has a cancer in their kidney. But I do tell them that if you had to pick something to have, this is a good one to have because 50 years ago, you know, we didn't have good treatments for Wilms tumor, and nowadays... With the combination of the ways we treat this type of cancer, survival rates are awesome. Even if you had a high-stage disease, meaning more aggressive, we can actually cure kids of this cancer with the treatments we have. Okay, and how do you treat children? So there's a combination of treatments. Not just one thing would would fix a Wilms tumor. So one thing we do is surgery. We have to take the cancer out of the body. It can't just be in there. And so sometimes it's on one kidney. Sometimes it's on both kidneys. And when we take out one kidney and they still have one left, the kidney does all the work of two but they still need to have more treatment. And so most kids that have Wilms tumor will need chemotherapy either before or after surgery, and some kids will also need radiation therapy to go and kill any tiny cells that might be left behind after the surgery. And what's the success rate? So the success rate, depending on the stage, again, the aggressiveness of the cancer you know, if you look at four years out from having the diagnosis of cancer, can be anywhere from 85 to 99%, depending on the stage.
5: So this type of cancer can spread. It's not going to be just localized just right in that kidney there.
6: Yes, it can okay. spread. How often is
5: this spread? Spread what do you call it, metastasis, Mm -hmm. when you first see this child.
6: It's actually pretty uncommon to see it go Go everywhere when you first see a child. And so even though they might have a big, huge mass in their tummy, it could just be right there in their kidney, not even going outside the kidney to the lymph nodes in that area or beyond. So what are the stages?
2: Because there's always the four mm-hmm. stages of mm-hmm. cancer. So then, what is that? What are those four stages? Yes. So Wilms tumor actually has five stages.
6: Oh, okay. And it's so, a fancy one. Yeah. yeah. The okay. first stage is that it's just limited to the kidney, hasn't gone anywhere else. Second stage means it's extending outside of the kidney and potentially has gone to the lymph nodes or somewhere else. You get to stage three uh, the tumor could have ruptured and it's gone outside of the capsule of the kidney um, and then stage four is it's gone elsewhere it's gone to the lungs or it's gone to another area of the body stage five is kind of interesting because although it sounds like the worst because it's five that just means it's involving both kidneys. Close. But even if it's involving both kidneys, we can still cut out parts of the kidney and take just the cancer out if we can, um, and try to save at least one kidney, if not both of them, and then they still get the chemotherapy, and they have really, really good success. The say? survival rates are actually quite similar. Okay. Um, what really matters is what they see under the microscope. So mm-hmm. when we take a tumor out, it goes down the hallway to a lab where our, our other doctors who look in the microscopes, they look at how aggressive the the tumor is. If it's the unfavorable type, which is the really aggressive type, the survival rates aren't as good. If it's the favorable type, favorable type, that's where even if you had a stage three, stage four, stage five, you still have really good success rates.
5: So, now what should a parent do?
6: So, most of the time they go to their pediatrician first thing because they don't know what they're feeling. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're just full of poop sure. and it's just a big poop ball, which is great. We can fix that. Um, or they go to the emergency room because it's night or a weekend and they're scared and they just go right in and, and and then the next step is, is you have to figure out what's on the inside. And so typically we'll get just an X-ray of the belly and an ultrasound of the kidneys to look for this mass. And then they'll end up getting more studies, which are CT scans or MRIs, to better look at the kidneys and the tissues around it.
2: Okay. When it comes to kidney cancer, then uh, uh, children must still get kidney cancer as mm-hmm. well. So are mm-hmm. if a child has kidney cancer, is it more likely to be a Wilms tumor or is it...
6: Yep, it dep- Even. Yep, depends on their age. If they're under 14, it's most likely going to be a Wilms tumor. If they're 15 or older, it is usually the type of kidney cancer that grown-ups get. And is it unusual for kids to get kidney cancer? It is, hmm. yes.
5: That's good. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you mentioned earlier that you sometimes take out kidneys for this. Mm-hmm. Now, you're obviously born with two kidneys. Can a child live, and is there a transplant on down the road for just having one kidney?
6: So with one kidney, kids do great. You know, we always have to watch them to make sure they're not getting high blood pressure, they're not having protein spilling into their urine, which are signs that the kidney might not be working as well. But kids that have one kidney can play sports. They can do everything. Football? they actually can Contact? play football, okay. yes. Okay. Con- right. Contact sports are okay because the risk of losing the kidney, even in NFL football players, is extremely low. But it's the high-velocity sports like motocross, snowmobile racing, things like that where you can have all of a sudden impact onto the kidney and then have an injury.
2: Thanks, Dr. Granberg, for your insights into the diagnosis and treatment of kidney cancer and Wilms Tumor in children. Dr. Candice Granberg is a pediatric urologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a new study about the effectiveness of the drug Addy, sometimes referred to as female Viagra, has some in the medical world charging the data were flawed. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Well, Tracy, a study that was published in February in the Journal of the American Medical Association concluded that the new drug ADI, you're also known by the name of Clebanserin, approved last year by the FDA for the treatment of hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD in women. The new study said that it was only marginally effective in increasing satisfying sexual events. The study went on to say that when you take into account the side effects which include dizziness and sleepiness and nausea and fatigue and plus you can't drink alcohol when you're taking it that maybe Addy wasn't yet ready to be used as a standard treatment for HSDD. This conclusion was met by strong
2: uh, this conclusion was met by strong criticism from advocates of Addy who charged that the study used flawed data. Addie, you might recall, has been referred to as female Viagra but that's another topic that we will get a <laughs> for chance to another get another show. Yeah. Here to talk about this study is Dr. Jordan Rulo. Dr. Ju- Dr. Rullo is a clinical psychologist and a certified sex therapist at the Women's Health Clinic at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rullo. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, uh, for what we have to say, why is it not the female Viagra? Why is that not accurate at all?
4: Yes. Great question. Uh, Viagra is taken on demand. It is to bring blood flow to the genitals. And this is not what Addy does. Uh, ADDIE is not about blood flow to the genitals. Um, ADDIE actually impacts uh, neurochemicals in the brain, specifically we think serotonin. Uh, so it's it's more of a, it was actually marketed as an antidepressant, or it started, it was developed as an antidepressant. Uh, so it is not about blood flow to the genitals. It is not take it in the moment as needed. It is take it every single day like you take an antidepressant.
1: Does it surprise you that this uh, recent study concluded that maybe it's not such a great dr- drug for hypoactive sexual disorder? Order because there was a lot of controversy mm-hmm. surrounding the approval, and there were a lot of people who suggested that maybe it wasn't a, as effective as some might think. There were a lot of side effects associated with it. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised that the FDA, in fact, approved it? And does the new study that suggests it's not all that effective surprise you?
4: Uh, I'm not surprised that the FDA approved it. Uh, this addy was studied in over 10,000. Uh, women, if you compare that to the number of men that were studied for Viagra, uh, it's it's a drastically different number. I mean, Addy really was run through the hoops in order to be approved by the FDA, study after study after study, so much so that Addy's, I I believe, the first drug uh, of its kind where you have to um, actually be certified to prescribe it and you have to take a test in order to prescribe it. And when you go down to the pharmacy after your physician has prescribed it, your pharmacist has to talk you through a variety of different things about this drug, especially the alcohol piece. Uh, So Addy went through the a ringer in order to get approved. This new study, I think what's important for people to know is that this is a a review of previous studies and it's a meta-analysis. So basically a meta-analysis is um, taking all the previous data from previous studies, putting it all together and making one big data set and then reanalyzing the data in this one big data set. So it's not like this is a brand-new study and this is new data that's looking at this drug. No, it's just a compilation of previous data looking at it in a different way, and there were flaws in the way that this study compiled the data and looked at it. Uh, So in my opinion, and in the opinion of uh, many other sex researchers and uh, sexual medicine physicians this new uh, review and meta-analysis really doesn't tell us anything new about addy because it has these flaws uh, we know that addy is modestly effective
1: so uh, is this have you had any experience using this drug
4: i personally have not used the drug uh, how, about some how
1: about some
4: patients
2: <laughs> do you have any patients that have used addy
4: i do not i do not have any patients that have used addy and i and i I think the reason for that, well, there's a couple reasons. One, I'm a psychologist, so I don't prescribe it. But the physicians that I work with, they have not prescribed it in the women's health clinic here. And I think the reason is, ADDI is only uh, effective for a small subset of women. So these have to be premenopausal women. And most of the women, at least that we're seeing in our clinic here, are postmenopausal women that have low desire? Yeah, where's an, where's an Addy like drug for them? Exactly, exactly. So it's only been FDA approved for premenopausal women. And when you think about what it's approved for, it's approved for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And basically, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD, is a low desire that can't be accounted for by relationship issues. Um, So it's not I don't like my partner, that's why I'm not having sex with my partner. So it can't be accounted for by relationship issues. It can't be accounted for by the effect of other drugs that impact low desire. Um, It can't be accounted for by just other environmental or social factors. So this is a low desire where we're scratching our heads going, I don't know why she has low desire. I don't know what's going on. And she's healthy. She's happy in her relationship. I don't know. That's a small subset of women, and we just haven't come across those women yet, at least in our clinic.
1: So I like my husband. He just doesn't turn me on. That's mm-hmm. the woman you're with. And why is it only approved for premenopausal women?
4: um that's a good. That's a good question. I mean, that's who it was studied in. That's who the clinical trials were in. Premenopausal women. I don't okay. know the answer to that. And
1: then you, you know, you add in all those side effects and mm-hmm. the fact that you can't drink alcohol at all while you're on this yeah. drug. I mean, it does limit the audience, doesn't
4: it? It does. And there have been a number of women that would have been eligible for uh, Addy, uh, but as soon as we mentioned the alcohol piece, they're like. Oh, wait, what? But alcohol helps me. No way. (laughs) And then another piece is um, it is expensive. So right now it's not covered by insurance, and it's about $800 a month think about that. You can't oh. drink alcohol and there goes $800 a month. You might as well go on a vacation each month and not do Eddie.
2: That's. A, I like that plan better anyway. <laughs> the last time that you were here, we talked about the study that you're working on and yes. you are still recruiting people for that study. And I think we should talk about it one more time. Tell I me about it. I would love
4: to talk about it. Uh, the study is about using mindfulness to improve sexual health and mindfulness is the ability to be present in the moment, non-judgmental. Uh, so in the moment, just being very very, very aware of the sensations that you're experiencing. Not thinking about the shopping list, the to do list, not thinking
2: about the, what I got to do tomorrow, the
4: deadline. Yeah. And you know what? Those thoughts are going to come up. It's, it's hard for us to control our thoughts. So the thoughts, those thoughts are going to be automatic. They're going to come up, but what you do is you just kind of let them flow by. Don't hold on to them, but let them flow by and then go back to the present moment, back to the present moment. And what's fascinating about mindfulness um, and its impact for women, we already know from a number of studies, it helps with low desire. It helps with sexual pain. It helps with difficulty with sexual arousal. It helps with orgasm. And the reason we think this is the case, uh, what's fascinating about women is their mind and body arousal. We have two types of arousal. Uh, we have our mind arousal, so our ability to be present when we're being sexual and our ability to say like, yeah, I'm into this. And we have our body arousal, so vaginal lubrication, blood flow to the genitals, warm tinglyness in the genitals. So mind-body The correlation between a woman's mind-body arousal, so meaning that if her mind's aroused, we know her body is, and vice versa, what do you think? Here's a little quiz. What do you think is the correlation when one is aroused, when mind's aroused, body's aroused and vice versa? What percentage of time do these two match up? Mind and body. I'd say less
2: to... than half the time.
4: You're right. Less than half the time. It's about 30% <laughs> oh, of the time that mind and body match up. Now take a woman who has low desire or any sort of sexual function difficulty. What percentage of time do you think that these two match up mind and body? It has to be even less than that. 4% of the time. Wow. So, And what do you think? Oh, what do you think it is for men? 99.5% of the time. <laughs> it's not that high. It's 70% of the time for men. Uh, but what we think is uh, that if, that women who have sexual function difficulties, one of the reasons is this mismatch between their mind and body arousal. And the mismatch is because they're not able to be fully aware in the moment of how their mind is responding or how their body's responding. And mindfulness has shown to actually reduce that mismatch.
2: I wanted to bring it up again because we're heard on over 80 stations around the country. Mm-hmm. And unlike some of the studies we hear about on this program, this is something that a lot of people can take part in, yes. correct?
4: Yes. Right, so, this, so this mindfulness study, um, what it requires is for the female participant who has a partner, doesn't matter if your partner is male or female, female participant needs to come to Mayo Clinic on one occasion do a one-hour consent uh, session. So in that one hour, just answering some questionnaires and making sure they're eligible for the study. Well, you'll make sure you're eligible before you even come mm-hmm. to Mayo. Um, but answering a few questions for an hour, then you go home, tell your partner about the study, make sure your partner is interested in it, and it's completely online. So everything you do is online. So there's an online portion where you learn mindfulness, and then there's an online portion where you learn sexual health education.
2: So how can people uh, contact you if they want to do this? If they want to come to Rochester for an hour, what yes, should they do?
4: Yes, um, <laughs> so first thing to do is to call and make sure that eligible for the study. You can either call or email. Phone number is 507-266-1944. And the name of the study is Sex Smart. So you'll call that number and they'll say, this is for the Sex Smart study. How can I help you? 507-266-1944. Or they can just send an email at DOM CRO at mayo.edu. D O M C R O at mayo.edu.
1: All right. If you get a busy signal, please hang up and try again. 507 266 1944. Dr. Rulo, thanks so much for being here. Sex thank therapist you. at the Mayo Clinic and psychologist. Really appreciate
2: it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. That's our program for this week.
1: For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one
2: of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your
1: questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org.